The following sermon is by our senior pastor, Grant Castleberry of Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 9 o'clock a.m. every Sunday morning. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. We're going to begin looking at John chapter 6. I direct your attention to John 6. The theme of John chapter 6 is the false disciple. That's, that's what Jesus is dealing with in John 6. And it begins with two remarkable miracles. Obviously, every miracle is remarkable, but these are especially noteworthy. Uh, the first one is that Jesus feeds 5,000 people. That's 5,000 men. There were probably many more than that. There were probably 15 to 20,000 people total with five loaves and two fish. And then he comes to the disciples later that evening walking on water. And they go across the, the Sea of Galilee towards Capernaum. And the disciples follow him from where he fed the 5,000 all the way over to Capernaum. And Jesus, this is fascinating, verse 26, he confronts them. He confronts the false disciples. And, he, and this, look what he says. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He's saying, you're actually not interested in me as a Savior, as a Messiah. You're interested because you got a free lunch. That's what you're after. You're, you're after me for a, a very temporal reason. Verse 29, he says, th this is what you should be doing. He says, you should believe in him whom he has sent, whom God has sent. You should believe in me. And what Jesus does really for the next 25 verses is unpack what that means, and he's going to explain that his body is going to be given, that, his, that he will be crucified, and that his flesh is, to, is true food, and his blood is true drink, and that we must appropriate that for ourselves, that it's not enough just to think that Jesus is a great person, but we must come to him as our Savior, and we must trust in his death for sinners his blood poured out for us. He says, you have to drink my blood. He means by that, we have to, we have to come to him and, and appropriate what he's done. Well, if you look at verse 60, he says, John records, he says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? If you skip down to verse 64, he says, there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Who's he talking about? Judas. Judas. Judas and these other false disciples. Think about this. Judas followed Jesus for how long? Three years. 
saw every miracle, heard all the teaching, saw the compassion of our Lord. And, and our Lord says, but I know your heart. I know that you will betray me. And he's saying to these, all these people, he's saying, I know you. And he's saying, I know that you really do not believe in me. This is Jesus' supernatural prerogative to read the heart. He knows their hearts. Verse 65, he says, and this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And verse 66, it says, after this, look at this, many, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. That word many is the Greek word poloi. Have you ever heard that phrase, the hoi poloi, the, the general masses? That, that's what it's from. It's many. It's a lot of people. A whole lot of people. And notice how they're described. His disciples. These weren't just the general masses. These were the, the, the men and women that were following him. And it says many of them turned away. This is the false disciple. We've actually seen this earlier. If you turn over to the left, just a couple pages to John chapter 2. This is Jesus' first Passover. And while Jesus was in Jerusalem, he was working all sorts of miracles. And it says in verse 23 of John 2, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many, notice that same word, poloi, many, believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So many believed. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. In other words, Jesus knew their heart. Now, the word that's used for belief is just the regular word for faith. It's the Greek word pistuo. What's interesting here, that word that's translated entrusted, it's the same Greek word, pistuo. John saying, many believed in Jesus with some type of faith. It, it was some, some type of belief, but Jesus did not believe in them. Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in their heart. It wasn't true faith. It was just an intellectual exercise for them. They believed in the miracle they didn't believe in him as Savior. One other example of this I want to show you. I want you to keep turning to the left all the way to Matthew chapter 7. Beginning in verse 13. And I want you to notice how Jesus keeps using this word, many. Jesus says, 
enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are what? Many. Many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Now, skip down to verse 21. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. There's a distinction. There's a dividing line. And this dividing line is amongst the religious people. I want you to hear that. This dividing line isn't just between uh, the Jew out there who's not following Jesus. This dividing line is between the disciples of Jesus. This is a dividing line between professing believers. And what Jesus is saying is is that there's two types of faith. There's a type of faith that's intellectual, and there's a type of faith that actually saves. And that faith manifests itself through obedience. That's what Jesus says. He says, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's the one who's saved. That's the one who really believes Verse 22, he says, on that day, that's the judgment day, many will say to me, there it is again, many, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Do you hear the surprise in their voice? This is unexpected. Lord, Lord. Didn't you see what I did? I did prophecies. I did did miracles. I I fed the homeless. I was a deacon in the church. I was a pastor. I was a Bible study leader. Didn't you see what I did? And Jesus says, I will say, depart from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. You never actually believed in me. Depart from me, he says, verse 25, you workers of lawlessness. Here's my concern in in reading John chapter 6. I've been studying John chapter 6, and we are going to get into the nitty gritty of John 6 soon. But here's my concern just in thinking about John 6, is that I think that there are many, many people in the church today who aren't really followers of Christ, who aren't genuine converted disciples, who don't have saving faith. The American church has been quick to say that any type of decision that's made or any type of prayer qualifies as saving faith. But listen, the Bible never says 
that walking an aisle saves you. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that saying the sinner's prayer with someone else saves you. What does the Bible say saves? Faith. Faith. I can coax somebody to say a sinner's prayer. I can. I can coax somebody to walk an aisle. I can. I can't make someone believe in their heart that Jesus is Lord. It's faith in Christ and faith alone that saves. And when I was growing up in Texas, it just seemed that we were so quick to assure people that just because they had made a decision for Christ at some point in their life, irregardless of whether any fruit was born, irregardless of whether they even walked away from the faith later on. I knew people. They made a decision. I grew up with these people. And then in college, they renounced Christ. They just went along the way with the world, living the party life, have nothing to do with Jesus. And we say, yeah, you're in because when you were seven years old, you made a prayer and you were baptized then. But that's not what the Bible says saving faith is. Here's what James says. James says, James says in 2.19, he says, you believe that God is one. You do well. The demons believe and shudder. The, the demons know the gospel. It's not enough to know the gospel intellectually. You have to believe the gospel you have to trust in Christ as Lord. That's what saving faith is. And so what I want to do before we start John 6, just over the next two to three weeks, is I just want to give you the qualities of saving faith so you can know that you know that you know that you possess saving faith. Remember uh, the... The people who study counterfeit money, how do, they, how do they spot the counterfeit bills? They study the genuine article. So we're going to go back, and I just want to look very simply with you at what saving faith is according to the Bible. And we're going to lay that foundation, and then we're going to go into John chapter 6, and, that, and we're going to be able to really understand it and interpret it. So over the next few weeks, two, maybe three, I want to give you 11 qualities of saving faith. 11 qualities of saving faith. And when we do that, you're really, I think, going to understand what saving faith actually is according to Scripture. And as we go through these, I want you to be asking yourself, is this me? Do I have this faith? Or is my faith a superficial faith? Like those disciples in John 6 that end up leaving Jesus there at the end. So, first quality of saving faith. Saving faith is a supernatural faith. It's a supernatural faith. Saving faith is different from all other types of faith. It's different from the faith that you have in your car insurance company. It's different from the faith that you have in your bank. 
It's different even from the faith that you have in your spouse. And the difference is the source. Saving faith is different from all other types of faith because the source of saving faith is God. God is the source of saving faith. In the early 5th century, that's 400s, there was a massive theological controversy in the church. Just huge controversy. And there was a British monk named Pelagius, and he made uh, a journey to Rome. And while he was in Rome, he heard somebody saying this prayer. And this prayer really frustrated him and made him upset. And here's how the prayer went. The prayer was very simple. It said, Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. In other words, what does the Lord command of us? Faith, obedience, godliness, holiness. What's the person saying? Grant to me what you're commanding of me. Lord, help me do the things that you've asked. And Pelagius heard that prayer and he says, this doesn't make sense. How can you pray to God and ask Him to do something that God's commanded you to do? Because if God's commanded you to do, surely commanded you to do something, then surely you have the power in and of yourself to do it. And he went up to this guy and he says, where'd, where'd you get this prayer? This is wrong. You can't be praying this. And he said, I got the prayer from St. Augustine. Augustine taught us to pray this. And so this controversy erupted between Pelagius and Augustine. And Augustine said, no, we do have to pray and ask God to grant us the the ability to keep his commands, to believe, to have faith. And one of the texts that he used to prove this is Ephesians chapter 2. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And Augustine argued from this passage. He said, faith is a supernatural gift of God. And he began just by pointing at verse 1. He says, look, look at verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, you, in which you once walked. That's a pretty lowly state, isn't it? To be a dead, stinking, spiritual carcass. To put it bluntly. What do dead people do? Stink. Besides that, nothing. Right? Right? When was the last time you saw a dead person get up out of the grave, go to the doctor and just say, I'm I'm in a really bad state, can you help me? They don't do that, do they? Why? They're dead. They're spiritually dead, physically dead. Well, that's what Paul's saying about our spiritual condition before Christ. Notice, in which you once walked before you became a believer, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Who's that? Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we 
all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's our spiritual state. So, is that spiritual state being dead? Are we able to obey? No. Because we don't want to obey. We'd rather follow the the prince of the power of the air. We'd rather go with the world. Because we're spiritually dead. We're depraved. We're children of wrath. That's our identity. Like the rest of mankind. Now, notice verse 4 begins with the greatest two words, I think, in the New Testament. This is your story and my story in two words. But God. But God. But God. But God. God did something in your life. God intervened in your life if you're in Christ. Being rich in mercy. Do you know what mercy is? It's pity for your state. It's pity for the consequences of your sin. And God, because He's rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, it's not like God loves us when we're this fine jewel. He loves us when we're dead, children of wrath. What, is, what does God do? Verse 5, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God makes you alive. That's the new birth. That's the spiritual resurrection. God does a resurrection work in the heart. And that's why Paul says salvation is by grace. Grace is undeserved merit that deals with the entirety of our lost state and grants us salvation. God gives this grace. How? He raises us up with Him and seats us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved. It's all by grace. It's undeserved. It's the work of God through faith. Okay, now this is where we believe. God gives us this new life, and immediately as a result, we believe. That's why verse 8 follows verses 4 to 7. And Paul emphasizes this in verse 8. He says, and this is not your own doing. Notice that we're so quick to claim responsibility for our faith. Why did you believe and your sister or your friend did not? You heard the same message. Why did you believe? Is it because you were smarter, more virtuous, more righteous? No. It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Well, what does it refer to? It refers to everything that's already been mentioned. All that Christ has done for you 
and the faith that was granted to you so that you could believe. Why is this? Verse 9, it's not a result of works so that no one may boast. You see, if faith wasn't a gift from God, you could boast in it. It would be a work. It would be meritorious. It would say, look at me. God did his part. I did my part. I'm just better than the people around me, all these other lost people. And Augustine points to Paul, and he says, no, you're not. Lord, grant what thou will, or command what thou will, and grant what you command. Give us the grace and the new life so that we may believe and have supernatural faith. It's not a result of works. Jesus illustrates this principle in the Gospel of Mark. I want you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. This is a parable. This is the parable of the farmer or the parable of the seed. It's Mark 4, 26. And this parable is only found in Mark's gospel for whatever reason. Matthew and Luke don't record this parable. It's only found here. Here's what Jesus says. Verse 26, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. Now we know that the farmer, the man who scatters the seed, is the evangelist. And we know that the seed is the gospel. So the evangelist scatters the seed on the ground. And then look at verse 27. What, is the, what does he then do? He sleeps. He rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. And then look at this last phrase. He knows not how. He knows not how. The farmer plants the seed, and then something happens underneath the ground. Germination, photosynthesis, and the seed begins to grow. Now, here's the point in the parable. This is what Jesus is saying, is that the farmer does relatively nothing besides planting the seed. So you speak the gospel. The evangelist speaks the gospel. And then what happens? He knows not what. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. And what happens is, is that God gives the growth is that the gospel advances in the sinner's heart by supernatural power. That's the point. Jesus is saying the kingdom doesn't advance by your ingenuity, your work, your fertilization, all this stuff. The kingdom advances by mystery, by the power of God in the life of the sinner as the gospel begins to grow in that dead heart and transform it. 
And Paul understood this. The apostles understood this. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.6, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. God gives the growth. God's the one who goes in and begins to work and do that spiritual photosynthesis. And that work is all the difference in the world between saving faith and intellectual belief. So how do you know if your faith is supernatural? How do you know if it's given from God? Let me give you two words. Time and fruit. Time and fruit. If your faith is a supernatural faith, it stands the test of time. You don't leave Christ. Your faith overcomes the trials that you experience, and your faith begins to bear fruit. John says in 1 John 5, 4, he says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Your faith overcomes the obstacles that the world throws at you, the persecution, the difficulties. Your faith perseveres through it, not because of you, but because, what does John say? Because you're born again from God, because it's the work of God. And if you look earlier in this chapter at the parable of the sower, this is so clear. If you've studied the parable of the sower, we don't have time to go all the way through it, but Jesus tells this parable, it might be one of the the most foundational parables in the New Testament, and and he says, the kingdom of God is like this, that a man sows seed, same same principle, right? An evangelist shares the gospel, and then Jesus says that the seed falls on four different types of soils. The hard soil that's next to the field, the path, and he says the birds immediately come and pluck up that seed. But then it falls on rocky soil, thorny soil, and good soil. And that rocky soil, it, um, it immediately sprouts up. And it looks like it's growing. It looks like there's fruit. But then the sun comes and it withers away. And Jesus explains later that that Uh, is illustrating the difficulties of the world, the trials that you face, that you believe, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I walk the aisle. I come forward. Two years later, my wife has cancer, and I get laid off from my job. Where were you, Jesus? I'm out of here. You renounced Christ. wasn't saving faith. The third soil is the thorny soil, and he says that the seed sprouts, it comes up, then it's choked out by these thorns and briars. And Jesus says that those are the cares of the world. In other words, you believe, and then you get caught up in being in, in being, being liked by the world. And it chokes out that faith. But, he says, there's one type of seed that falls on good soil. And it, he says in Mark 4, 8, it produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold 
and a hundredfold. Now listen to this. Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying not everybody who, who makes a profession of faith believes. He's saying that faith, if it's really genuine, it has to grow. It has to produce fruit. It has to bear 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. One important, massively important implication of this, of the fact that, that saving faith is a supernatural faith, is that, is that this is the ground of our assurance. How do you know that if you are a Christian today, you will be a Christian tomorrow? How do you know? How do you know that tomorrow morning you won't wake up and say, I no longer believe. I'm going to walk away. I'm done with Christ. How do you know that that's not going to be you tomorrow? Well, you know if you have a supernatural faith. If, if faith was something that I mustered up, it would be something that I would mess up. If faith was something that I found, it would be something that I would lose. If faith was something that I did, it would be something that I would renounce. But faith, since, it, since I know it begins with God, I know that God will keep me in that faith all the way to the end. I mean, listen, this is, write down Philippians 1.6. This is what Paul says. He says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You know that you will continue to the end, that you will be saved, because God's the one who began the work to begin with. And God keeps his own until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the first quality of saving faith, supernatural faith. The second is childlike faith. Childlike faith. I want you to turn to the right to Mark chapter 10. This is another really famous teaching of our Lord. It's found not just here in Mark 10, but also in Matthew 19 and Luke 18. And if you look at verse, excuse me, did I say, yeah, this is right, Mark 10. I'm in Mark 8. Mark 10, here's what happens. Verse 13, they were bringing children to him. Uh, children there is the Greek word paideia. It means a child that's probably up to the age of seven years old. So we're talking about little children. We're talking about toddlers and, and, and preschool-age children. And the they is certainly the parents, right? The parents are bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them. And I think the idea here is of a blessing. I don't think they're coming for healing. I think what they want is they want a blessing from God on their children, a blessing from the Lord Jesus on their children. And the disciples rebuked them. 
They probably thought that Jesus had more important people to minister to, that he had more important thing to do, important things to do. But, verse 14, when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. He was angry at them. And he said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. Now notice this last phrase, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. So he brings the children and he receives them. We see this uh, in verse 16. He takes them in in his arms and he blesses them and he lays his hands on them. But Jesus wants to uphold these children as a model, as as a living metaphor, if you will, for us. And he says, these children are a picture of the faith that is required to enter the kingdom of God. They're a picture of that. Here's why. Children possess several qualities. Let me give you three qualities. You could probably extrapolate more. They're helpless. Children are helpless, especially little children. They're incapable of caring for themselves. All they can do is cry. Or say, can you get me this? They're helpless. Sometimes this continues long into adulthood. (laughs) Sometimes my wife says, Grant, you're helpless. (laughs) Especially when it comes to breakfast. They're dependent, right? They're dependent on, on a parent or a guardian or someone else to provide for them all that they need. I mean, if you're a parent, you know this. How often are you, you, know, you sit down in the chair to read your book or, or do something, and it's, Mom, can you get me this? Dad, can you do this? Mom, can you find my lost toy? It, it's dependency. They need you for everything. And then third, children are trusting. They trust everything that you say. I remember I had a problem eating fruits and vegetables when I was a kid, and my mom told me that prunes were candy. (laughs) And I trusted her. I I thought for years I was sneaking into the refrigerator to get candy. I remember when I'm eight years older than my brother. I remember when he was four years old, we were up at our lake house in Wisconsin, and this lake house had been built in the 70s and really before the days of indoor plumbing and there was an outhouse out in the back. And I told my four-year-old brother that the hole in the outhouse was a portal to a different world. <laughs> he believed me. I caught him before he went down. I hope you're watching the live stream, Andrew. But children trust what they're told, right? I mean, this is, this is by, by nature who children are. They, they believe what you tell them. That's why it's so important, by the way, that parents that we're discipling our kids and that we're very careful about who is spending time with them and who is shaping their worldview. What Jesus is saying is, is that 
this is how we must all enter the kingdom of God. That if you don't have childlike faith, you're not in. That if, if you don't come to Jesus helpless, dependent on him, trusting him, everything that he says, he's saying you're not in the kingdom. Because the kingdom of God is like a child. It's not like an adult. If you come to Jesus and say, Jesus, look at me. Look at how smart I am. Look at what I've done. Look at my upstanding place in the community. If you come to Jesus like that, he says, I don't want it. If you come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I've done my part and I just want you to help me reach my goals. He says, I'm through. You have to come completely depending on him. And you have to trust him. In Him alone. There's probably no better illustration of this than the centurion. I want you to turn very quickly to to Matthew chapter 8. To Matthew chapter 8. Turn all the way to the left to Matthew chapter 8. And Jesus Jesus describes this centurion as having the, the greatest faith that he ever encounters, which is remarkable. A Gentile, verse 5, he says, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. You remember a centurion was a commander of a hundred soldiers in the Roman army. They would have had to have served for 15 to 20 years before reaching the rank of centurion. They were trusted men. They were uh, relied upon throughout the Roman Empire. And interestingly enough, every time a centurion is mentioned in the New Testament, it's men, he, he's mentioned in a positive light. So often it's the centurions who believe and are used to help advance the gospel. Do you remember the centurion at the cross when, when the earthquake happens? Do you remember what the centurion said? He said, surely this is the Son of God. Do you remember the centurion on the ship with Paul? And that everybody was about to execute Paul and, and, and the prisoners. And the centurion said, stop, wait. God uses all sorts of people to advance the kingdom. And the centurion comes to Jesus. And, and look how he comes. He comes appealing to him. And he says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering, suffering terribly. He's helpless. And the centurion's helpless. Surely they've done everything that they could have done to try and help this servant. But there's nothing else that they can do. And he comes dependent on Christ. He comes forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed. Won't you help him? He's suffering terribly. And Jesus says to him, I will come and heal him. Now notice this trust. Notice this trust that he has in the Lord Jesus Christ. The centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word. You don't need to come. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Just say the word, I be- I, and he'll be saved. And when Jesus heard this, 
he marveled and said to those who followed him. This is the only time in the New Testament it says that Jesus marveled. He marveled at this man and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Why was his faith so great? Because it was the faith of a child. This mighty warrior had childlike faith. Childlike faith. And in the school of Christ, you never graduate from childlike faith. You never graduate from being a child in the kingdom of God. Did you know that? You never graduate from being a child. You're always helpless, always dependent, always trusting God. That's, that's the life of the believer. Jesus calls his disciples, John 13, he calls his disciples little children. He says, little children. John says, 1 John 2, 13, I write to you children because you know the Father. He says in 1 John 3, 1, he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called what? Children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. This is the Christian. You're a child of God. You are a child of God, completely helpless, completely dependent, and walking by faith, trusting him. That's the Christian life. It's childlike faith. So, now we need to do the soul work. Is that your faith? Have you come to Christ helpless? Have you come to Christ completely dependent upon Him? Have you trusted in Him completely and not your works? Those are the questions that you need to be asking. And if you haven't, come. Be a child. Come to Him. Say, Lord, I need you. I know I need you. Every hour I need you. I don't possess the things I need to enter the kingdom. I don't have a righteousness of my own. I don't have perfection. I have a whole litany of sins in my path. I need your blood, your forgiveness, your death on the cross, your resurrection life. I'm helpless, and I trust you completely. You enter the kingdom of God as a child, or you don't enter in at all. Heavenly Father, we're just stunned by the work that you've done in so many of our hearts. You granted us this supernatural faith, this faith that comes from above, this faith that 
will last for all of eternity because it was placed in our hearts by you and will endure to the end in which manifests itself like a child have we come to you helpless, dependent, and trusting in your every word. And I pray, Lord, this morning for the person who came here this morning and realized that that wasn't them. And I pray, Lord, for that person as they're doing that work of looking into their own heart and realizing that you know their heart, that they need to come into the kingdom of God like a child, trusting in your word that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We love you. We're so thankful to you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.